0: Welcome back to the program. We see today in the debate about immigration a little bit about the way falsehoods and mass hysteria mixed with doses of fear and change can create a movement. Back in the 1980s, a delayed reaction to the 60s, to the rise of women, to the offshoots of feminism, coupled with the rise of the Christian right and the changing American family, gave rise to a suburban fear that went way beyond Yates and Cheever. One of the ways that it manifested itself is in what would become the longest criminal trial in U.S. history, the McMartin preschool case. My guest, Richard Beck, takes us back to this time in his new book, We Believe the Children. Richard Beck is an associate editor at N Plus One Magazine, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about We Believe the Children, a moral panic in the 1980s. Richard, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you here. I want to ask you first, what got you interested in, in going back to this period of time and, and looking at this subject?
1: Well, uh, a few years ago, the magazine that I worked for, M Plus One, had a research group going, uh, which was sort of a separate project from the magazine that I was a part of. And it was working on a project for that research group that I heard about one of these cases. I think it was the McMartin case. Um, and I should say I'm 28 years old, so I, didn't, I wasn't old enough to have been around to remember it when it was happening. But I heard about the McMartin trial and thought it was very interesting. I was very surprised that no one had ever told me about it, that I'd never heard that this happened. Um, so I went and spoke with a journalist who had written about it, uh, who she happened to live in New York at the time as well. And she told me that, in fact, it wasn't just this one interesting case, which is sort of what I had thought at the time, that there were, in fact, dozens of these cases that had happened all over the country and that it had been a truly kind of national phenomenon. Um, and at that point, I got very interested. It seemed that I couldn't find anyone under the age of 30 who had really heard about these cases in any detail which is weird given the amount of news coverage they received at the time. You know, they were on twenty twenty, right. they were on 60 Minutes, uh, there were federal congressional hearings um, where these were mentioned, and yet it seemed not to have made it into our standard kind of story of what happened in the 80s. Um, and so the book was a bit of an attempt to correct that.
0: It's interesting when we look at what was going on during that period of time, the McMartin case being perhaps the the penultimate example, but it was this, as you say, this widespread fear of danger to children, abuse of children, missing children, you know, children on the back of milk cartons. It was an entire pervasive culture that had become uh, part of our, our landscape.
1: Yeah, of course, and that fear really came into being in the late 70s, and then I think especially in the 80s. And the daycare trials were just one expression of that fear. You know, like you say, uh, children on milk cartons. In the 70s, of course, there were a couple of very uh, famous kidnappings, the Akon Potts uh, disappearance in New York City. A lot of people talk about how that really changed, um, how parents in and around New York thought about you know the wisdom or lack thereof of allowing your children to play outside in public. Um, also, the kind of the kind of mythological figure of you know the trench coat wearing pedophiles who kind of stalks playgrounds and bus stops. That really came into its own in the 1980s as well. Um, so this is an anxiety that really found its way into many different areas of American life.
0: It was also the sense that it became very self-perpetuating, and maybe it was a reflection of the media at the time, and as you talk about, these stories were everywhere, in that the fear begat more fear, which which really created more fear and more precautions on the part of, of parents.
1: Yeah, that's certainly true, although I want to push back a little bit against uh, the idea that the media is kind of exclusively or primarily responsible uh, for making the panic so durable. Um, one of the things that I tried to do in the book, I think there is a tendency when you're looking back on these panics from the past, you know, whether it's uh, the daycare cases or McCarthyism or what have you, uh, to give the media a little bit more credit than it deserves uh, for making the panic happen or at least to neglect the role that a lot of other professional groups play. So, you know, law enforcement... Um, The FBI held a conference on uh, ritualistic abuse in the mid-1980s. The judiciary played an enormous role. Psychotherapy played a big role. Uh, So the media is just one institution among a number of institutions that gave the panic this self-perpetuating quality.
0: And, and as you allude to there, it really was a kind of perfect storm. There was law enforcement. There, there was you know certainly whatever role, large or small, that the media played, but there was the rise yeah. of psychiatry going on at the time. I mean, feminism, the rise of the Christian right. There were so many forces that contributed to this, all that, that kind of started to come together at the same time. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's right. Talk a little bit about the McMartin case and how that came to the fore as really the the poster case for, for this panic that we're talking about.
1: Well, so the McMartin case, I think uh, part of the reason it's received so much attention is just because it went on for so long. Um, the investigation began in the late summer of 1983, and the case didn't end for good until uh, 1990 um, or 1991. That case began when a woman named Judy Johnson, whose son had attended the McMartin preschool for, you know, a relatively short period of time, uh, became worried that her son was being abused at McMartin and took her concerns uh, first to uh, the emergency room to pediatrician, uh, then to the police. Um, And they opened an investigation, which, you know, is the thing you should do when someone says they think this is happening. The problem was that the way they investigated it was uh, therapists working at a place called Children's Institute International uh, began to interview children who had attended the McMartin Preschool and asked them whether anything had happened to them uh, at the preschool. And these interviews were conducted in an increasingly, over, over time, an increasingly coercive manner. Um, the therapist essentially refused to take no for an answer. Uh, At the same time, the police officers who were the police department that was investigating the case sent out a letter to the parents of uh, 200 children who had attended McMartin preschool. They sent this letter out fairly early in the investigation saying, we're conducting an investigation into possible child molestation at McMartin please ask your child if anything had happened, and also please don't talk about this with anybody else, which, of course, that last instruction, the parents completely ignored. Um, and so this rather panicked atmosphere sprung up almost immediately in Manhattan Beach.
0: And in fact, very little investigation was done, a very little focus at the time on Judy Johnson herself.
1: Yes, that's true. Uh it became clear later on uh, that Judy Johnson had had uh, some mental health difficulties, uh, that she was under an enormous amount of stress at the time that the investigation began, uh, when she originally uh, dropped Matthew, her son, off at the uh, McMartin preschool. Uh, she didn't enroll her son. She tried to enroll him, but was told... Um, was told that uh, there was no room, that there was a waiting list. McMartin was a very prestigious preschool at the time. So she just drove over one morning, and Matthew was, you know, two or three, and put a note in his lunchbox explaining who he was, and essentially left him in the playground out front and drove away. Um, so that can kind of, that is sort of indicative, I think, of what her mental state was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on, as the investigation accelerated, her mental health problems became very acute. She started calling up the police department with really uh, elaborate uh, fairly paranoid fantasies about what she thought had happened to Matthew. Uh, she would tell prosecutors that she believed uh, an AWOL Marine uh, was stalking her and her son and breaking into her home and abusing her son. Uh, and she actually, uh, she also the problems with alcoholism, and she died in 1986, I believe, uh, before the the trial even finished.
0: And yet, as this came out, none of this did anything to really lessen the fear, the hysteria, and, and the prosecution with respect to the trial, to the McMartin trial, and particularly McMart- Virginia McMartin's grandson, <laughs> Ray Buckley.
1: Um, yeah, that's true, although I think it's important to remember when you're thinking about panics like these from the past that People experiencing the panic as it's happening don't have access to anything like the amounts of information that we have access to today. You know, the the parents uh, and the other residents of Manhattan Beach in 1984 aren't reading uh, the full transcripts of the interviews being conducted with the children. They don't have access to the police reports where Judy Johnson is making You know, really fantastical claims about one of the teachers, you know, flying around in the air. Um, That kind of stuff, you know, it's really a very small group of people who have access to it. So I don't think it's so surprising that this atmosphere of panic would still be able to prevail in the town as it was happening.
0: And as you report this story, talk a little bit about the things that this story touches in the culture at the time. Why, perhaps, it had the kind of power that it had.
1: Uh, I think what made the idea that there were kind of conspiracies of child abusers in daycare centers so compelling, uh, the nerve it really struck, had to do with the fact that the place of the nuclear family in U.S. society was really undergoing rapid, structural, permanent change uh, at the time. Uh, Unprecedented numbers of women had entered the workforce, in the 1970s, uh, especially white-collar work, um, the divorce rate had really skyrocketed. The idea that the natural way of things uh, is that children are going to be raised at home by their stay-at-home mothers while fathers work full-time and bring home money for the family, that was really being called into question. Um, and, of course, daycare is the institution that makes it possible to hold down a full-time job if you're a mother. Um, You put your kid in daycare, and then you can go to work. So there were all of these ambient anxieties floating around about, you know, is daycare good or bad for children's development? Uh, Should parents be feeling guilty about leaving their kids at daycare? Is it more like they're abandoning their children to daycare while they indulge the professional vanity? So when these cases began to pop up, it really seemed to confirm everyone's worst fears about what happens when women don't care for their children full-time at home. You know, it's not just that maybe your kid is going to learn to read a little more slowly at daycare than he would were he being raised at home. It's that there are conspiratorial satanic child abusers waiting for him there um, who are taking advantage of him while you're totally oblivious off of your job.
0: The satanic aspect is, is an interesting aspect because it really becomes a kind of fuel for this political and social anxiety.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, And I should say up front that not every one of these cases involves claims of, you know, satanic ritual abuse. Um, They really exist on a spectrum where some you'll just have allegations of uh, massive, you know, ongoing child abuse, but that doesn't have any ritualistic, you know, overtones. You'll have some allegations where They're pretty fantastic, Uh, they're very lurid, they're weird, but they're not specifically satanic. But in some of these cases, uh, McMartin was one of them. You do have allegations flying around that the abusers are engaging in orthodox, ritualistic, organized Satanism. Uh, In the McMartin trial, teachers were thought to have taken students to an Episcopal church in the middle of the night uh, and to have carried out uh, satanic rituals.
0: Where is the role of, of the Christian right in all of this? Because that was emerging at, at a similar time and really objected to many of these things that you're talking about with respect to the change in the family and childcare, women in, entering the workforce, etc.
1: For sure. Um, I, it's absolutely correct that uh, evangelical Christianity was building up a huge uh, amount of political and social momentum in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, I don't make the case that, you know, the Christian right kind of like fomented this panic in any organized way, um, but it's true that its cultural influence was really growing. Um, you know, and there at the this conference that I mentioned that happened at the FBI about satanic ritual abuse, one of the presenters uh, who was a detective from San Francisco who'd really been quite obsessed with ritual abuse for a long time, uh, talked at length about how the rise of Satanism is part of, you know, a wider social attack on Christian conservatism in general. Um, So that was definitely in the air and was part of the cultural mix um, that made these fears so potent.
0: The other thing that was in the air at the time was the increased focus on psychology and psychiatry And this whole business of trauma theory, talk a little bit about that and the role that it played in this.
1: Yeah, I don't know that, well, there's a few things happening with uh, psychiatry and psychology at the time. Uh, In the couple decades leading up to the 1980s, the American Psychological Association had decided to admit lay therapists, so people without an advanced degree, meaning that essentially you or I could, you know, rent a little office building and put a sign on the front door that says psychotherapist and we'd be in business. Um, so it really uh, is the professional ranks. Um, there is also in the eighties, a real turn towards uh, trauma and towards victimization. Um, one thing I talk about in the book running alongside the daycare cases is the rise of recovered memory therapy and multiple personality disorder. And the idea behind recovered memory therapy is that you'd have a patient almost always an adult woman seek out therapy for help with sort of normal problems, you know, anxiety, depression, uh, job loss, uh, divorce, whatever it might be. And then the therapist would essentially say, you know, I don't think that, you know, your job loss can really account for what you're feeling. Uh, We need to do some real hard work and go back into your childhood and see if anything happened to you there that you might have repressed. Um, And very frequently, that kind of therapy, which involved hypnotherapy, which involved very powerful doses of strong barbiturates, um, would turn up uh, recovered, in quotation marks, memories of uh, ritualized satanic abuse that the patient had suffered as a child. Um, So this idea that those kinds of traumatic memories get buried as a part of the normal course of things, as a way the mind normally operates, and that you really need to push patients or alleged child victims pretty hard in order to get them to acknowledge those memories, uh, that was a very powerful current working in this panic.
0: And then it became even more extreme later in the 80s with people believing simply that if, if, if you had even the slightest inkling that maybe there was some abuse in your background, it must be true. It was sort of axiomatic.
1: Yeah, there was, um, I guess there's a few ways to talk about this. One would be there is a, uh, a guy working out in Los Angeles named Roland Summit who wrote up something uh, called the Child Sexual Abuse Accommodation Syndrome which was basically his description of how children deal with being sexually abused, uh, psychologically. And, you know, according to this paper, um, it's very common for the child to initially deny that he or she has been sexually abused. Um, and that it's important for therapists to really, uh, press pretty hard to get the truth out, you know, and that part, uh, isn't entirely wrong. Uh, Children are frequently reluctant to disclose abuse because they've been told they'll get in trouble if they do. However, he also said at the end that even if a child does disclose abuse and then comes back later and says, no, I'm sorry, I, I made that up. Uh, It was because of the interviewing. It was because of being made to sit here for so long. If they retract their allegations that that should be seen as further evidence that they were really sexually abused. Um, so that's a fairly extreme interpretation of things. And then the other example that really always sticks in my mind is that in the 90s, uh, Roseanne Barr, uh, for a period believed that she had recovered memories of being abused by her family when she was young and cut off essentially all contact with, uh, her family. But she went on the Oprah Winfrey show and was talking about her experiences And something she said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, but I'll try and get it as close to right as I can. She said, when someone asks you if you were sexually abused as a child or if you were abused as a child, there are only two answers you can give. One is yes, and the other is I don't know. You can't say no. Um, So that speaks to exactly what you were talking about there, just that, that assumption that abuse occurred as a kind of default.
0: How does the, the rise of feminism and, and various offshoots of the feminist movement in the 1980s fit into this story as well?
1: Well, the f- second wave of the feminist movement had enjoyed really extraordinary, uh, concrete political momentum all through the 1970s. Um, there were laws changed all over the country uh, that were changed as a direct result of feminist activism. Um, One example that I like to think of, just because it sometimes is difficult to remember just how different things were before the second wave of the feminist movement, was that at the end of the 60s, uh, marital rape was legal in all 50 states. In other words, it was not rape. Um, If you are married to a man, uh, as a matter of law, you cannot deny him consent for sex. That's one of your obligations as a wife, is to have sex with him whenever he wants And by the end of the 1970s, marital rape uh, as an illegal act, as a crime, is on the books in all 50 states. That's an extraordinarily fast change. Um, What happened in the 80s was that, uh, you know, as Reagan took office, as the evangelical movement uh, really got itself organized, you had this nationwide uh, pushback against the momentum that the women's movement Mm had enjoyed and I think that as a result of this, the women's movement began to split in a number of ways. So you had one wing of the women's movement that stayed pretty true to the kind of a radical 70s roots. And then you had this other wing that, along with these therapists, along with these evangelical conservatives, became very interested in victimization uh, in specifically sexual victimization and trauma um, so you saw a range of activist, uh, actions, uh, from this segment of the feminist movement in the eighties, having to do with child abuse, uh, with sexual assault on college campuses and also, uh, with pornography, uh, anti-pornography feminism really came into its own in the eighties. Uh, and my argument, my contention is that that segment of the women's movement wound up contributing, uh, even though in a mostly indirect way, uh, to this panic. Um, With that said, one thing I want to make very clear is that it's not like feminism as a whole contributed to this panic in any way. Um, In fact, some of the earliest and most intelligent and most forceful critics of the panic, some of the first people to call it a panic, were feminists. Um, The first piece to be assigned uh, by a national newspaper uh, that was critical of these cases was assigned at the Village Voice, and the woman who assigned it was Ellen Willis, the radical uh, feminist intellectual.
0: One of the things that is particularly worth looking at from a historical perspective is that in the McMartin case, certainly no evidence was ever found. McMartin and Buckley were completely cleared of any charges that repressed memory, recovered memory, that a lot of aspects of what was going on at that time have since been discredited, that so much has been discredited and, and really thrown out in, in the history of this.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, the, ev- the physical evidence in these cases was non-existent. Um, you know, there was no physical evidence recovered uh, in the McMartin case ever that corroborated any of the stories that were being kind of pulled out of these children in therapy. Uh, the prosecution's case in McMartin was based almost entirely on the testimony of these children, um, which caused problems for the prosecution because there would be some hearings at which, you know, I think most of these kids began to fabricate stories very reluctantly. You know, it's after, uh, a long time in the interviewing room, um, It's not like they're gleefully going out and making stuff up, but every once in a while, there's going to be a kid who really likes to make up stories. Um, that's one of the things that kids do. And so a big problem for the prosecution was a day in court where, uh, a nine or ten year old boy who was on the stand and who was talking about satanic rituals that happened at the church, you know, was asked about, you know, did he recognize any, any of the other strangers who were there participating in the abuse? Uh, and he was shown a piece of poster board with a bunch of photographs on them. And the defense attorney said, can you just point to anyone on here who you also saw at the church? And he pointed to two people, and one was James Kenneth Hahn, who was then city attorney-elect for Los Angeles and eventually became the city's mayor, and the other was Chuck Norris, uh, the action star.
0: When you talk to young—I mean, and, and you're one of them, as, as you said— the way in which this story— plays out to young people when they hear about it. Those that, that weren't around during that period, talk a little bit about that.
1: Um, I mean, initially, you know, when I was first starting to do my research and I talked to friends, you know, what are you working on? I want to write a book about these cases. Um, I'd say, you know, I'm writing a book about this panic that happened in the 80s where daycare workers all over the country were falsely accused of being Satan-worshipping pedophiles, you know, and I had one person say, oh, so is it a novel? Um, I mean it really it really is a thing that just hasn't been transmitted down um to the next generation as part of the standard narrative of the eighties. Um I think that the version of the eighties that a lot of people still have in their heads has a lot to do with, you know, uh popular music and white jackets and cocaine and like Reaganomics and hedge funds. Um But this kind of cultural component of what happened politically in the 80s, you know, the extent to which the women's movement really had been one of the most powerful political forces in the country, and then by the end of the decade, it really wasn't anymore, and that that change had been concrete and was being acted out on the level of policy and not just rhetoric or media coverage or whatever, uh, I think that's really been forgotten to a large extent.
0: And do you think that there are elements of this that have the political and social aspects of it that have still filtered down to this day, that some of the debate about whether it's feminism or childcare or so many of these issues still, this this history is still there in the DNA of these issues?
1: For sure. I think that there is still today a fairly omnipresent fear that children, young children, pre-pubescent children are in danger, specifically sexual danger, if they're out in public. Um, And especially if they're out in public by themselves. You know, I don't know if you'd seen these, but there have been a few news stories in the last year or two about parents who get arrested for leaving their children alone in public places. There was a woman who was going to a job interview and left her two kids in a locked car on a cool day for about an hour. Uh, She was arrested and charged, I believe, with a felony, Uh, There was a mother who allowed her nine-year-old to go play in a public park um, that was about a mile away from home. Uh, She was arrested. The child was briefly taken away. And when you ask law enforcement, you know, what's the justification for these arrests, what they inevitably say is, well, you know, there's there's pedophiles around. Um, And the thing is, there basically aren't. Um, This idea that pedophiles walk around in parks looking for their victims uh, is not true. Um, People who abuse children uh, almost invariably know their victims uh, beforehand. Um, They're not cruising around, you know, looking at swing sets and seeing who they can snatch and stuff into their van.
0: There was a whole other wave of this that you remember as well. In the 90s, when kids started to go online and this fear of, of pedophiles online and chat rooms, I mean, it, it, was, it was a little bit of a mini panic during that period.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, although, you know, I think it's important to emphasize the mini part of that panic uh, because, you know, even if some of the same fears are being mobilized there, you know, it's not the case that 80 people are wrongly being incarcerated as a result of that panic. Um, and I think it's important to remember that the daycare panic really did result in prison terms for a lot of people and that a lot of those people spent years or even decades in prison um, before their cases were overturned. But yeah, sure. Uh, you saw this with uh, even more recently you know, with the emergence of Snapchat. Um, it's like the first time, the first reaction a lot of people have to any new communication technology. The worry is that you know, teenagers are going to use that technology uh, for sex, um, or that pedophiles will use that technology to prey on children for sex. It's just, it's like a cultural reflex at this point.
0: Richard Beck, his book is We Believe the Children, A Moral Panic in the 1980s. It's just out from Public Affairs. Richard, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.